Ride a spiritual Uber to the land of the dead. Shake that monkey off your back and stick it in your internal organs. Witness Smokey and a bear in a hairy confrontation that ends in wildfire. All these and more stories of weird history, strange science, and the paranormal. It's stranger than fiction. And you're soaking in it. It's this week's supernatural news-filled nectar called Odd Tonic. Welcome to the parlor. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Maxwell. The tea's been poured and the settee beckons with soft, velvety pillows, dear Mm. guest. So please join us as we investigate some of the latest odd happenings from around the globe. I love reading current odd news. (laughs) It's like the weirdness is right there, breathing down your neck. (laughs) (laughs) No buffer of three centuries here. (laughs) These stories are fresh and ready to move right in next door and stare at you while you bring the trash cans to the curb. (laughs) Shall we give our guests fair warning as to what they're in for this evening? Absolutely. Although I've already hidden their shoes, so they're stuck with us now. (laughs) Tonight, we'll check in on China's Human Monkey Chimera program, see what science has to say about your uncontrollable sobbing while flying, (laughs) and sip some vodka from Chernobyl that burns all the way down. (laughs) But first, we're going to watch a science publication do the Macarena in a minefield (laughs) as it attempts to support documentation and facts of a more paranormal nature. This month, Psychology Today published an article titled, Are Near-Death Experiences Just Comforting Illusions?, which is appropriate for a science magazine. I mean, you don't want to lend any credence to facts that suggest otherwise and <laughs> endanger your career, right? Right. Except that, bless their materialistic hearts, they did. In a seeming contradiction to the article's title, the subtitle reads, Verified perception during NDE suggests they may have some basis in reality. And indeed, they do. But before we get into those, a quick recap on near-death experiences. The classic scenario usually involves an accident or complication during surgery. Experiencers described floating above their body, ascending into a tunnel of light, meeting benevolent entities who give you snacks (laughs) no (laughs) the spirits of loved ones or sometimes a divine figure but ultimately being told that they must return soon they find themselves back in their bodies and forever changed by the experience depending on the survey somewhere between 4 and 15 percent of people have reported to have a near-death experience or nde and some of their stories are difficult to refute Some experiencers accurately describe physical events taking place near their body or even miles away, though their brains and bodies were inarguably non-functional. The Psychology Today article goes on to describe some interesting examples taken from the 2016 book, The Self Does Not Die by Titus Rivas. In 2007, an 82-year-old hospice patient reported a near-death experience while in the hospital trauma room. He described floating up, 
viewing his body and all the activity going on around it, and saw, rather specifically, a 1985 quarter resting on the right-hand corner of the eight-foot-high cardiac monitor in the room. Upon resuscitation, the man was quite affected by his NDE and sought proof for his experience. He requested that his attending physician check whether the quarter was really there. The doctor climbed a ladder and indeed confirmed that the 1985 quarter was actually where his patient had seen it. In another account from 1993, a woman reported an NDE in which she ascended up through the floors of the hospital and through the roof where she saw a single red shoe lying up there. A skeptical physician later went onto the roof to check and indeed discovered the red shoe she described. And just a note here, there is a famous NDE story from 1977 where a woman named Maria claimed to see a tennis shoe on a third story window ledge, which was discovered to be true by a social worker. We're not completely sure if the red shoe is a different story or a sloppy retelling of Maria's experience. The article then spends a bit of time marveling at a case where a man arrived at a hospital very dead, having been found, quote, unconscious, stone cold, and apparently clinically dead out in a meadow. In the ambulance, they tried to resuscitate him, but failed, end quote. He was completely blue when he arrived at the hospital, and the staff spent an hour and a half resuscitating him before he was stable enough for the ICU. A week later, the now fully alert man spoke to one of the nurses who had been part of the resuscitation team. He described in detail how, before they attempted to revive him, this nurse had removed his dentures and placed them on a pull-out shelf on a crash cart filled with bottles, which, of course, was exactly what she had done. Also covered are NDEs where people have witnessed verified events that have occurred at a distance from the hospital, such as someone correctly discovering that both of their grandmothers had suddenly taken up smoking, <laughs> and someone watched their wife and daughter talking about taking clippings from a unique tree in the hospital courtyard. <laughs> My husband's dying, but look at these petunias! <laughs> How our hearts lifted to see a science magazine include verified facts like these, mm. despite the inconvenience of them not fitting into our current paradigm of understanding. Writing this high, we reach the last paragraph of the Psychology Today article, which read, Now, do these NDE perceptions prove that all the other aspects of the NDE-ers' experiences are accurate? For instance, that they really did meet their deceased loved ones, or that they really truly met God. No, they don't <laughs> prove this. But they do suggest that NDEs might include contact with reality, even without normal heart or brain function, and that this contact may actually stretch beyond what we are capable of when our bodies are operating normally. So, essentially... We'll support this part of scientific <laughs> impossibility, but we will not accept this part of scientific impossibility <laughs> because it's just way too impossible on the scientific scale of impossibilities. <laughs> okay, psychology today, we get it. Baby steps. But thank you for taking them. 
Actually, we do have a lot of hope that there will be a mainstream large scientific study done to understand the full nature of NDEs sooner than later, as the tide seems to be slowly turning. Within the last few years, books written by physicians who experience profound NDEs themselves have reached the bestseller lists, including those by doctors Mary C. Neal, Jeff O'Driscoll, and Eben Alexander. Plus, groundbreaking work by doctors Pim Van Lommel and Sam Parnia, who we'll discuss more in a moment, are actively looking to bridge the spiritual and material gap with hard scientific data. As we've already discussed, those who experience NDEs sometimes witness their physical surroundings from a high vantage point. This is called veridical perception. A few studies have tried to take advantage of this unique phenomenon by planting perceptual stimulus within environments conducive to NDEs, up, out of the vision and knowledge of the working staff and subsequent interviewers of NDE experiencers. An excellent article from The Atlantic from 2015 called The Science of Near-Death Experiences discusses the findings. To date, six studies have tried some form of this method, mostly on cardiac arrest patients, and all have failed to find an ironclad case of veridical perception. The latest and largest such attempt was the so-called AWARE study, led by Sam Parnia, of the State University of New York at Stony Brook, published in Resuscitation, a peer-reviewed journal. In it, 15 participating hospitals in the United States the United Kingdom, and Austria installed shelves bearing a variety of images in rooms where cardiac arrest patients were likely to need reviving. The results of the AWARE study immediately highlight the key problem with this kind of research. It's very hard to get enough data. Over four years, the study recorded a total of 2,060 cardiac arrests. There were more than that, but the researchers weren't able to record them all. Of those patients, 330 survived, 140 of whom were judged well enough to be interviewed and agreed to participate. Of those 140, 101 made it past a screening interview. The others were unable to continue, predominantly due to fatigue. Of those 101, nine remembered experiences that counted as an NDE on the Grayson scale, and two remembered an out-of-body experience. Of those two, one became too ill to interview further. That left just one subject who could recount what he had seen in detail. That one case is tantalizing. The patient, a 57-year-old man, described floating up to a corner of the room, seeing the medical staff work on him, and watching himself be defibrillated. According to Parnia's paper, several of the details he described checked out. What's more, after triangulating the patient's description with the workings of the defibrillator, the researchers think he may have seen things that happened for as long as three minutes after his heart stopped. If true, that would be remarkable. On an EEG, the brain typically flatlines within about 20 seconds of the heart stopping. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation gets enough blood flowing to slow cell death, but not enough to fire up the brain. Unlike the brain of someone under anesthetic or in a coma, this patient's brain should have completely switched off until his heart started beating on its own again. 
Still, the clinching evidence remains elusive. Even though the AWARE Studies hospitals collectively installed about 1,000 shelves with the special images at various locations, only 22% of the cardiac arrests happened somewhere with a shelf nearby. The star patients wasn't one of them. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of effort. I know. All those cases, three different countries. Thousands of shelves, and they get one guy. <laughs> Who wasn't your shelf. Was it? <laughs> it must be frustrating. <laughs> it must be. Well, we applaud brave scientists looking at NDEs with true scientific spirit. Encourage them to keep going. Go, scientists! <laughs> Hooray! Autonic is confident their work will be rewarded in amazing discoveries. Absolutely. Even though it can sometimes seem like the weird, slippery world of consciousness can always be one. One step ahead with a bizarre curveball. Case in point, in 2010, Dr. Raymond Moody, the veritable father of modern NDA research since 1975, published a book called Glimpses of Eternity, sharing a loved one's passage from this life to the next. Within it are accounts of a rarer but equally fascinating form of near-death experience, one in which a live perfectly healthy person becomes a temporary tourist and joins a soul on its way to the great hereafter. Scott M. Taylor, EDD, is the president and executive director of the Monroe Institute and has, through the years, shared his personal account of this type of experience. Sadly, his tale begins with tragedy. Mary Fran and her son Nolan were both in a fatal car accident. Mary Fran was killed instantly, while Nolan hung on for a few more days in the hospital, surrounded by two anxious families, along with Taylor. Taylor picks up the story at the moment of Nolan's death. As Nolan's heartbeat patterns flattened and the monitor beside his bed sounded the constant, unwavering tone of organ failure, every member of his extended family wept, except for me. As he left his physical body for the last time, Mary Fran crossed the divide between the non-physical world and the physical and scooped Nolan out of his body. Their reunion embrace was exquisite. Then, to my surprise, Mary Fran and Nolan turned and included me in their embrace. Together, the three of us went to the light. I know of no English words for the combination of joy, ecstasy, love, and requited longing that burned within me. It carried me to a dimension I never knew existed. In that moment, there was no pain of loss, only unity, rapture, and reunion. Taylor described his awareness of still physically being in the hospital with the mourning families, aware that his face must have been alight with ecstasy, and understanding that this would not be perceived well to those around him, Taylor covered his face with his hands. He continues, I was fully conscious, fully present in the hospital room with the grieving gathering, yet simultaneously I was lifted to a place beyond description. I experienced bilocation, two fully conscious vantage points, one on the windowsill next to Willie, and a second somewhere in another dimension embraced by Mary Fran and Nolan as she guided her son farther into the light. Hmm. 
Wow. Yeah. This is an amazing story. It's just so unique. I feel like I witnessed an out-of-body group hug or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> More of these stories and of classic NDEs can be found in Dr. Raymond Moody's many books. Alternately... Keep listening to Odd Tonic. We're bound to be covering this subject in more detail and soon. Well, these souls must leave temporarily. <laughs> but when we return, we'll meet some ghost hunters who get seriously pranked by spirits and a creepy house guest who descended literally out of nowhere, much to the chagrin of its horrified hosts with an emphasis on its <laughs> don't float away odd tonic will be right back do you remember life before odd tonic perhaps you were haunting the old family mansion in dismal solitude alone in the attic with only a dusty dress form a chest full of morning lace and a few pale moths to keep you company but now you are here with us in the vibrant candlelight with more lovely, odd conversation than you could ever have dreamed of. At the very least, we're more engaging than that decrepit attic step you love to make creak at midnight. <laughs> Haunt others by telling them about Odd Tonic and leave us a kind review to invite others to visit the parlor. And join our hellish crusade! Or just listen to the podcast right we also have a patreon to support the show visit patreon.com slash odd tonic for more details all these things help keep the light on in our attic now back to more eerie and amazing articles du jour welcome back so far we've discussed near-death experiences and a science magazine's awkward dance around accepting heightened consciousness in a material world. And some really compelling stories as well. Mm -hmm. It's funny how science can be carrying the torch of enlightenment one moment and then snuffing out the light on itself and stumbling around in the dark <laughs> the next. <laughs> and then there are the scientists who bring the light by setting the house on fire. Subtle. <laughs> Unexplained Mysteries covered this story from China. With transplant patients often having to wait years for organs, scientists have been looking for increasingly unorthodox ways to try and meet this ever-growing demand. The idea of crossing a human and a monkey to produce internal organs suitable for transplant has been debated before. However, in most countries, such experimentation is considered illegal. The team, made up of members of the Salk Institute in the United States and the Murcia Catholic University in Spain, are working in China and have injected human stem cells into the embryo of a monkey. Although the experiment in this particular case was halted before the resulting creature could be born, scientists elsewhere have condemned the research as immoral. The biggest concern is that some of the human stem cells could make their way to the brain potentially leading to consciousness. Wait, wait, wait a second. They're scientists. Scientists, mind you, are still holding on to the idea that only humans possess consciousness? <laughs> no, there is only one level of consciousness, and it is ours. Humans are special, Jennifer. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> Says lead researcher Juan Carlos Ispasua, we are now trying not only to move forward and continue experimenting with human cells and rodent and pig cells, but also with non-human primates. 
Convincing others to pursue such a controversial line of research, however, is likely to represent something of a challenge in of itself. Unless you're China. Unless you're China. Well, of course, other science fiction tropes have become realities, Jennifer, like <laughs> video calls and pocket-sized computers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why not a planet of the apes? <laughs> maybe it's time. Well, maybe we should just start burying the Statue of Liberty now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still hung up on how they think monkeys exist without consciousness. Do mm. they think they're just bumbling around like zombie robots? <laughs> maybe they're interchanging cognitive ability and consciousness. I don't know. As soon as the human genome was cracked, you knew that this was when the fun was really, truly <laughs> ready to begin. I mean, pretty soon we'll have a new name for all the alleged lab-grown cryptids of Montauk, <laughs> New York, and soon it'll just be China on a Tuesday, right? <laughs> a planet of the apes might be the safest place for us in the future, <laughs> in a big human zoo nestled in our own cage. <laughs> And with that, let's visit some ghost hunters who recently tried one out for size themselves. The Independent has the scoop. Fire crews were called to the historically protected Old Accrington Police Station in Lancashire, England, just after midnight on July 21st, after reports that people had been trapped inside. It turns out a group of ghost hunters were mysteriously locked inside a cell at the former police station and had to be rescued by firefighters. Mm. Those trapped were taking part in a most haunted experience ghost hunt, which gives the public a chance to go along with the crew from the hit television series on a ghostly expedition. They may have gotten more of a fright than they bargained for when the cell door became locked and they were trapped for about two hours. Oh, wow. The Lancashire Fire Service spokesman said crews, including a team from Urban Search and Rescue, eventually had to gain entry with a saw to release the people around three in the morning. Historically protected. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Oops. Ghost hunting crew manager Jenny Bryant said it was unclear how the door became locked as that it had been set in a position to stop the doors from closing. There's lots of stuff that cannot be explained and we can't marry all of it up, she said. Mmm, ghost stuff. <laughs> <laughs> are you listening, Oreo? Ghost stuff. Quote, we are still investigating, but we are looking into put wooden blocks in the lock so it won't happen again. Mm. Oh, it won't happen again. <laughs> mm, until the next season. <laughs> she said seven guests were on the ghost hunt with former police officer Gareth Barry, Mary Betty, Wendy Postma, and even Greg Smith from the show. But Miss Bryant said, once out of the cell, the guests had told the team they were happy with how they had been cared for by the crew. Quote, the guests were looked after during the whole situation and we made sure they were safe and got some drink. <coughs> Brandy. <coughs> <laughs> they were all upbeat and everyone was fine, she added. We don't know if we can call it paranormal, but at the moment, it is a mystery. Hmm. I've just looked it up. And the event's website promised a, quote, location not to be missed. <laughs> it describes the police station as a derelict and terrifying location that will unnerve the hardiest of ghost hunters. It is very easy to become disoriented within the long, dark corridors and rooms. But add a ghost into the mix and you're set for a night you won't forget. <laughs> yeah, for eight to ten years, seven with good behavior. <laughs> it does make you wonder if they stay 
staged it for publicity. Mm. I mean, I'd like to think it was a genuine ghost happening, but you just never know with a television show. No, you really don't. (laughs) Now, I tried looking into what ghosts are said to be at that location, and I didn't find anything specific to the police station. Mm. I did find at least one quote that said, the entire Lancashire area is a veritable hotbed of paranormal activity, Mm. including every type from witches, headless specters, to ghosts and Roman soldiers and everything in between. But this was from an article about a Lancashire man arrested for breaking and entering into a house that he claimed he was only ghost hunting in. (laughs) Right. I I read that one. What is going on in Lancashire? Maybe they need a bowling alley. (laughs) Well, before we leave the realm of the spooky, we have one more sinister story that made us giggle like schoolgirls at an after-school seance. Here's the story from Mashable.com. Renee Jensen of Bergen County, New Jersey, and her boyfriend, Alex, were sitting in their backyard when they noticed something fly, quote, out of the sky and land on the ground. It didn't fall, she wrote in a Facebook post. It flew out of the sky without hitting any of the bazillion trees on our property. The mystery object was a toy of Pennywise the Clown, the iconic supernatural villain from Stephen King's It. This version, albeit less terrifying, being about a foot tall, (laughs) had a face covered in fake blood. Strangely, it also had symbols written across its forehead in permanent marker. Hmm. Adding to the creep factor, the character is known for saying, we all float down here in the book, miniseries, and the movie. So the New Jersey woman dealt with the unsettling plush clown appearing in her backyard in the most sensible way possible, by destroying it with fire. (laughs) Pretty scary, she lamented on Facebook. Thank God my kids weren't home. (laughs) She added that it, quote, definitely didn't come from the one neighbor who lives in the house next to hers. She didn't originally want to contact law enforcement, convinced that they wouldn't take her seriously. Other members of the We Live in Bergen County Facebook group goaded her into calling the police after her post gained traction. The two Harrington Park police officers who showed up assured her that reporting the incident was a good idea. (laughs) They were hysterical, Renee said. They wouldn't touch it. They were totally creeped out, too. It was so funny. They didn't take the toy for evidence, but did suggest getting rid of it. So she took the most logical precautions and burned Pennywise. (laughs) At first, the demonic clown wouldn't catch fire, (laughs) probably because toys tend to be flame retardant, Mm. not because of any supernatural protection. (laughs) Jensen tried to soak it in olive oil. Olive oil? What? (laughs) To flambe it in a nice saute. Uh, But when that didn't work, she managed to finally set Pennywise ablaze with the help of newspaper kindling. Renee still didn't feel safe, though. Just in case, she made sure to take some spiritual measures, too. I had a stick of sage, and I lit that thing, she said. (laughs) I was walking around our entire property. When in doubt, sage it out. (laughs) That's right. The owner of a Reiki and intuitive healing business nearby, Jensen was also concerned about the symbols written on the clown's forehead. She and her boyfriend couldn't find any information about the lettering online. It looked like weirdo occult satanic crap to me, she said, and wondered, am I getting cursed or something? (laughs) 
For a while after the incident, she kept weapons near her bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> but later admitted that she was now feeling safe enough as things calmed down. I'm not sleeping with a knife anymore, she said. <laughs> Good plan. We saw what happened last episode when you sleep with a knife. That's right. <laughs> Never sleep with a knife unless you have a board across your chest. Rookie mistake. <laughs> Anyway, New Jersey is not the only state to have something mysterious drop from the sky this month. Something bigger and hairier dropped in on a California deputy sheriff. Huffington Post has the story. A sheriff's deputy was on their way to reports of a drug overdose when a bear either fell or jumped onto the hood of the police car. (laughs) The bear smashed the windshield with the car hitting an embankment, rolling onto its side and bursting into flames. Wait, the bear or the car burst into flames? (laughs) You're reading it. I guess it's your choice. (laughs) I choose flaming bear. The fire spread to about a half acre and gutted the patrol vehicle, but fortunately, the deputy managed to escape without any serious injury. He did not, however, escape a serious amount of paperwork over the instant. (laughs) Though the bear did, he fled the scene. (laughs) California's Department of Transportation issued a reminder to drivers to stay alert. To be aware of the nature around them as they use the roads. (laughs) Watch out for falling bears, kids. (laughs) Only you can prevent flaming bears. (laughs) The reminder also stated bears, elk, and deer are just some of the critters sharing our coastal home. And at any point without warning, they may come out at you and explode. (laughs) Stay vigilant (laughs) for falling flaming bears and exploding elk. (laughs) I want to see that highway sign. I need it. We need a design. I need this in my life. Okay. Let's have a design contest. Someone design that for us. Okay. Now, every month it seems like there's some news story about someone acting completely inappropriate while on an airplane. Mm. Luckily, this time, our general human jackassery can be let off the hook with science. (laughs) Here are the details from NPR.org. You may not have particularly noticed, but flying makes people do weird things. And science might explain your weird and emotional airplane behavior. (laughs) I love how science distanced itself by saying might. (laughs) Not weird, Carl. You're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, when people get on a plane, they revert to a lizard brain where they forget all social decencies and common sense, says Kat Anderson, a flight attendant who has seen her fair share of oddities through three years of accommodating travelers. I think I want to hear all her stories. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Flying takes away everyone's sense of control. So people tend to grasp at whatever kind of control they have, whether that be yelling about overhead bin space above their seat or yelling about having to check their bag or whatever. Flyers cry more at movies in the air. They confess secrets to strangers. They develop compulsive behavior so intense they fear being seen by co-workers on a group <laughs> business trip. This is why we travel together. That's right. <laughs> the change in behavior starts in the airport. A place of both freedom and captivity, said Mary White, an anthropology professor at Boston University. The Boston Globe investigated and found that the incapacity to regulate emotion might have a scientific explanation. 
Low air pressure reduces the oxygen in our blood and can affect our decision-making and emotions. The symptoms related to hypoxia are probably part of what cause airline passenger sob fests, a phenomenon so common it's called the, wait for it, mile cry club. <laughs> On my last flight, I was watching Crazy Rich Asians and I was sobbing pretty bad, said passenger Alan Perez. <laughs> And with my blanket and my pillow, I hid my face a little. I don't know why I was ashamed, but I didn't want the guy next to me to worry about me. That poor man. <laughs> Perez exhibits other odd behaviors while flying. Like other passengers, his cravings are different in the friendly skies. I usually never drink ginger ale, but every time I'm on a flight, I get ginger ale with ice, says Perez. And I always eat the ice afterwards. This is before or after the crying. <laughs> <laughs> During. <laughs> Flight attendant Anderson says Perez is in the norm, joined by passengers who hanker for a glass of tomato juice. This sounds familiar mm -hmm. and, and <laughs> quite startled me when I read this for the first time. <laughs> Ginger ale is probably one of our most ordered drinks, Anderson says. Same with tomato juice where you don't normally order something like that at a restaurant. But people get on a plane and they just crave it. Why tomato juice? A 2010 study commissioned by Lufthansa, after the airline noticed intense tomato juice consumption on board, found that changes in air pressure can reduce the sweet and salty signals to the brain by up to 30%. That confirmed earlier research dating to the early 70s, which led airlines to serve honey-roasted peanuts. Their thinking went like this. Give the people extra sweet and extra salty snacks, and you can overload their unresponsive tongues. From there, it's just a short step to tomato juice, a sweet and salty drink. In 2015, Cornell University researchers further investigated the question and found that extreme noise conditions, such as inside an airplane cabin, diminish perception of sweet flavors, but enhance the taste for umami, a category in which tomato juice kills. If you want to be on trend on your next flight, order tomato juice, watch a movie, and weep. <laughs> Last year, United announced it was removing the beverage from its menu, and customers expressed outrage, <laughs> eventually motivating the airline to reverse its decision. Despite our emotions running wild and our cravings out of control, Anderson reports that flight attendants usually don't judge their passengers' weird behavior. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it happens enough times and you're like, oh, well, they're doing that again, Anderson says. It just becomes normal. <laughs> oh, bless the flight attendants' hearts. The things <laughs> they had to put up with from people, I, I just can't imagine. Actually, uh, I was told this story from a, a friend who was a flight attendant. Yeah. One year over the Easter season, somebody had sneaked on board in their carry-on live chicks what? that had been dyed different festive Easter colors. <laughs> and somehow this container opened and there were brightly colored chicks running <laughs> All over the flight cabin. <laughs> but the key moment was when one of the attendants came on the PA and said, uh, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, if you see a chicken, please pick it up and put it in a barf bag. Thank you. <laughs>
Hello, chicks. Oh, I, I would have loved to be on that flight. You know how much I hate flying. That would have been a good distraction for you. Yeah, sitting next to you, drinking your tomato juice. Right. <laughs> how crazy is that? Right. Now, I actually do drink tomato juice when mm -hmm. I'm not in the air, but I have to admit that it's not very often. But when yeah. I am on a plane, yes. it is it is my go-to drink, and so, I had yeah. no idea. So much that I've noticed. Like, I'm around you a lot, and I never see you order tomato juice, but we get on a plane, <laughs> and I could order for you, you know? Like, yeah, he wants tomato juice. Yeah, well, you know, it's just good to know that I am special, just like everyone else. <laughs> Speaking of drinks, we will leave you with this nightmarish nightcap from UPI.com. A group of scientists announced they have created vodka from ingredients found inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone and verified that it's safe to drink. <laughs> I just have one thing to say. Why? <laughs> well, it turns out mainly for charity. The vodka labeled Atomic, Atomic with a K, was created by University of Portsmouth scientists from grain and water from inside the exclusion zone as part of a three-year research project into the radioactivity of crops grown inside the 19-mile radius, which experienced a reactor explosion in 1986. Quote, we found that the crops were slightly above the very cautious Ukrainian limit for consumption. So technically, you can't eat those crops, but we thought, well... We've got some grain. Why don't we try to make vodka? Of course. <laughs> Project leader Jim Smith said. Smith's team found that distilling the vodka reduced the radioactive contamination to an undetectable level, making it safe to drink. When you distill something, lots of impurities stay in the waste product, and the final product is more pure. And that's what we found with our vodka. We fermented the grain, then distilled it. We found that we couldn't measure any radioactivity in the product, Smith said. He said the newly founded Chernobyl Spirit Company will soon be selling atomic vodka, with 75% of the profits going to communities affected by the disaster. The vodka will be the first consumer product from the exclusion zone, since the disaster. Interesting. No matter what, I'm sure this vodka is going to get glowing reviews <laughs> under a blacklight. <laughs> <laughs> this hot vodka rates 2 million. Geiger Counter Magazine. <laughs> well, that wraps up this weird and wild news edition of Odd Tonic, filled with flaming bears, <laughs> flaming dolls, and a vodka with a flaming radioactive isotope. Mm. I'll keep to the tomato juice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I make your Chernobyl Bloody Mary. You like it. <laughs> Remember to share our podcast with those oddlings you know and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And leaving us a witty iTunes review really helps make us look smart. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more weird history, strange science, and paranormal peculiarities. This is, dear guest, goodbye for now. But remember... If you're ever enjoying a picturesque moment in your backyard retreat, when, from a distance, a dark speck comes into view, marring the clear blue sky as it grows larger, floating down to land in the middle of your shattered reality, don't worry. It's just us. Good night.